Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 Podcast, where we get together every fortnight, and sometimes more often, to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Ernesto Morales, the founder and creative director of Studio Malagón, a graphic design agency that creates moments of connection in Austin, Texas. Ernesto leads a creative team that we are currently collaborating with on the new 10.7 site, and I am so excited to be talking with him today. Ernesto, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Yes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Are you joining me from Austin today, like I said you were based in? Yeah, I am. I'm in my backyard studio. And do you have a wonderful view of the warm green outsides of Austin? Yeah, it's true. It, it, summer is something that people dread here and it creeps up on you and suddenly it's just here baking you. So that's what I'm seeing right now is the sun's coming up after a week of rain. And it's May, so I imagine it's going to get much hotter <laughs> pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of reverse of cold weather, places like Minneapolis where summer is the dreaded season. Yeah, isn't that right? <laughs> yeah. So you didn't grow up in Austin, did you? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Houston, just a stone's throw away, actually on a street called Skipping Stone Lane. Um, my parents, <laughs> <laughs> My parents are from Mexico City. And they moved to Houston right before I was born and raised me and my sister Sylvia there. And we were still very well connected with Mexico. They're, they have a lot of extended family that we would go visit once or twice every year growing up. Um, and so we, were, we grew up in the suburbs of Houston, an area that's like very international, in Jersey Village High School in Northwest Houston. And... We're still so connected to our, our Mexican family and roots there, so a little bit of a multicultural upbringing. And you mentioned that um, you went to high school there. What, what era was that? When did you go to high school, and what, what did it look like around um, culturally and from a pop culture perspective for you? Yeah, it's funny. I think just immediately of technology, right? Like the way that I was communicating with friends was always on AOL Instant Messenger. And it was, you know, getting, sneaking access to the family computer and eventually taking over the family computer for my just friend conversations. So, you know, I grew up with a lot of creative introverts and chat was our way of talking. And, uh, you know, we were kind of an alternative rock kind of crowd. I was in an alternative rock band as a drummer. Oh, you were? Yeah. yeah Let's hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> what was the name of the band? Long, long ago. It was called The Shrieks. Um, and from what I remember, our, our lead singer, uh, lead writer, Nick Norris, was interested in finding something that was uh, SEO friendly in a way like the shrieks is just like a thing that is memorable as like a band name um, in the very early days of searching for things on Google I think he was very advanced we were following a lot of uh, you know the garage rock movements of the time and um, he was 
really a genius songwriter and kind of all of the people in the band were more adept at musicianship than I was. I was just there to kind of beat on the drums and <laughs> never really leveled up my skills, but I was just having fun uh, with the band. And Did you want to be a musician when you grew up or was it uh, kind of design early on? Uh, it was design early on. When we were graduating from high school, I threw a final summer party at our house and I did this very nerdy thing of having a sort of guest book where people could write their names as well as their future careers that they had in mind. <laughs> we were all going on different paths, right? And I, I think I still have that thing somewhere. I wrote graphic designer. Um, I had run into this book at a bookstore that really made me fall in love with design and made it all click for me. It was called The Cheese Monkeys by Chip, Chip Kidd. And Chip Kidd is a graphic designer. And this book was about a graphic designer going to graphic design school. So it was very specific. But also the, the book itself, the experience of being in bookstores, was where I fell in love with just the, the intimate connections, these moments of connection that you mentioned at the top, um, and how design can create those and create this very personal experience of something that you hold in your hand or you interact with, a lens through which you see the world. And so I was very attracted to that, that energy, that power. And in just exploring where my creativity could lead in that direction. What year was that? It was in 2004 that I graduated high school. And I graduated college in 2008. There was a lot of a sort of feels like bygone traditional graphic design where there was like a common canon of traditional graphic designers. Paul Rand was at the top and there were other white men to follow or kind of like from a European tradition, uh, Swiss design. There was a lot of still classic standards that folks held on to and it was the early days of, of web and digital design. There just weren't any real disciplines around that yet. And you couldn't even implement any of the designs really online either, right? Helvetica became a web font so much later. Like the best you could work with was Arial and, and maybe Times New Roman. Exactly. So a lot of limitations, a lot of links just as blue as they could be and red when they were <laughs> clicked on. So yeah, that was a that was a very different era and that that was when I really fell in love with design through the sort of like traditional print lens. And I fell in love with the more experimental folks of the 80s and 90s, M and Co. Stefan Sogmeister, people who created not just, again, a book design, but like a beautiful package with a sleeve insert, and there's this deep concept, and when you open it up, there's a hidden message here or there. Um, there that whole just layers of meaning and, and concepts that just make you connect more with a thing, that was always what drew me. So after that summer party that you threw, you made your way out to Boston, to Boston University. And you you knew you were going to be a graphic designer at that point. I did, but I grew up with my dad being a you know, business manager, the kind of role that is in a big corporation. He worked for HP. The kind mm. of role that I still really could not explain to you in a sentence. 
I have a friend who I can't explain his job either, so like I totally get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel embarrassed by it. I had, I grew up in a sort of, you know, this kind of pressure to have a career that had more clarity around it and graphic design at least the folks that I was following were more in this kind of like artistic leaning and didn't feel as much of a clear career path. So I, I deviated a bit. And and I think that that deviation helped because it wasn't that much of a deviation. I studied communications um, at the College of Communication at Boston University. And that was a lot of breadth. It was... Um, it was a lot of writing. You had to. Your first course was writing fifty profiles of famous people in a hundred words each. Um, we would do script writing and PR writing, and then we would do other projects like advertising and video production. And it was it was a lot of um, just broad based thinking about communication. What is what is the true meaning and message we're getting at, what is the audience, how are we defining them, who are the competitors or other people in the space. It was just this broad and strategic way of thinking. Then I came and applied to graphic design. I took an elective that was graphic design uh, in a different school, and then I took a few advertising courses where I tried to hone my design skills. I was interested in that part, but it was not... The, it was not like a design curriculum that I took. I ended up just amassing a portfolio of enough design things that I then took into uh, some internships that I then grew into the next internship. And so my career was just really slowly pieced together through a lot of just uh, doing the extra work to try to oomph my design without having like a formal design instructor to tell me these are the standards you should follow. How amazing that your communications career would become so fundamental to the work you do today. There are times when I um, didn't want to bring that up because I didn't want to bring up that I was self-taught in graphic design because that could look like I had something missing. And now, just looking back, I realize like, the breath has really helped. Yeah. So what was your first design role then out of college and how how did you land it? Yeah, out of college. So I had done in college a few internships and um, had a little bit of a working resume and a little bit of a working portfolio. And I had this, this friend, Ava Roski, who worked for the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, which was then, um, you know, around 2008 was like a relatively new building, very big landmark um new architecture and they had a big landmark new brand to go with it. So she introduced me to the designer who was had the ICA on retainer and uh, his name was Jose Nieto based in Salem, Massachusetts and I went up there on the commuter rail with my little portfolio and I very shyly presented my work. And he was very detail-oriented. I remember him commenting on certain things that he would have done differently or was suggesting that I could learn from. And I came back from that just thinking, oh boy, I got a lot of work to do. But then it turned out he called me back and wanted me to be his intern. We had connected on some level and he was really eager to 
teach me and to have someone to teach. Um, he was so passionate about design. He was the one to introduce me to these groundbreaking thinkers like Sogmeister. And I would always just ask a question and he would like stop what he was doing and pull out a book and show me what, you know, how he might respond to that question. And we would drive around to different, you know, we would go check on the print production for something. And on the whole drive, he would just answer my questions. And it was just such a generous mentorship that was just the day in and day out of being an intern with him because it was, it was just the two of us most days. What, what do you think he's doing now? Are you still in touch with him? Yeah, I checked in with him a few years ago. He's at a um, he's sort of a creative director position at a place called Argus. I tried to check in with him, but it was through LinkedIn because uh, that's all I had of his anymore. And LinkedIn messages sometimes people respond a month later because they're not used to it. So <laughs> right, uh, we missed the coffee date. Oh, that's too bad. Those early influencers and mentors can make such a big difference in one's career and one's life. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about reaching out to, you know, those early mentors and just giving that sense of gratitude and that check-in. Yeah, that 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 would be amazing. And so then you were interning in Salem and I know you've been all over the US and also working in Mexico City. So you went to, you grew up in Houston. Uh, went to college in Boston. First job was out in Salem. What was the impetus to move to Mexico City and work there? What were the circumstances around that? Sure. So my my parents being from Mexico City, I had always visited as a child, but had always been just kind of wrapped up in the bubble of family. Like mm. we were just literally breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We had appointments with family all day. And, um, or else we were stuck in the house. There was not a lot of, even into my 20s, not a lot of, you know, go off on your own. And part of it was just my parents being cautious. They had grown up in Mexico City and didn't want their kids just kind of out in the wild and the unknowns and the sort of unwritten codes. You know, it's just like any other big city. There are unwritten codes that you have to follow and understand. And I... Really, actually, I was attracted to it because I became a DJ. So I followed the musician thread a little bit into adulthood. And I was very focused in this kind of Latin American uh, electronified sound that was going on in like 2012 era. Um, there were genres like Mumbaton and digital cumbia that were, um, that people were just releasing bootlegs of the stuff. And I was just curious, like, you know, this is my roots. Like, I'm playing this music up in Boston, but I'm from Mexico, and I feel like I don't really understand the culture on my own terms. And I just wanted to go down there. Um, I went down with my DJ partner, Sarah Skolnick, who now goes by Rio Bamba. We went down to what she arranged, because she was always just making engagements for us. She arranged it as a... Uh, travel diary of us as DJs in Mexico City that I would design for our website, that we would take video for. So again, my communications background kind of turning this whole thing into a package. And at the same time, we were touring. Then I just met somebody who was hiring a graphic designer and I stayed. It was kind of like total serendipity moment, but born from trying to connect with my graphic with my 
with my cultural roots. Uh, you probably heard me laughing about um, the fact that you said you were a DJ, and that, that was not insulting at all, um, mostly because your middle name is David, and your initials are EDM. <laughs> and I think that's just um, another another genre of music that's electronic that you could be DJing. And so I, I thought that the connection there was um, quite amusing and funny. Yeah, it's true. I, I've owned that in different times, too. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, EDM is... I, I sign off my emails now as EDM. How have the different cities you've lived in influenced the way that you design and the way that you think about the creative process? So, I mean, I've been lucky to just be in communities that are very entrepreneurial and self-starting. I graduated in 2008 in Boston where the recession was hitting and I wanted to work at small design studios, but the opportunities just weren't there. I was working at Square Zero in Salem for a little bit, but then that dried up, and I decided, let me move closer to home. A lot of my Houston friends have migrated to Austin. Let me go see what's going on in Austin. And Austin had a lot of uh, dry opportunities as well. I was kind of just piecing together this freelance career. But at the same time, in the many places that I've been, I have just been, again, lucky to meet people who are self-starters and entrepreneurial. And um, in more recent years, when I was in Mexico City, I was amazed by how many people that I would meet were running multiple different endeavors with multiple different creative partners. And they had like very established brands and websites for just the event series that they were doing or the music series or the design studio. They just so many different people kind of just making their business and their their simple marketing materials to put their name out there. So when I was in Mexico City, it was really the inspiration to think, this could really be my studio. I've been freelancing now on and off, trying to just piece together the gaps in my education, trying to piece together my income. But what if I sort of leveled up and treated this as as a studio and took on that that whole name. And so Studio Malagón was born in Mexico City is what I'm, I think you're saying. It was, yeah. And originally, actually, Malagón was my DJ name. I see. So DJ Rio Bamba and DJ Malagón. Yeah, and we were together as a duo. We were pajaritos, which means little birds. Uh, but Malagón and Riobamba, actually both of those are place names, but they kind of, we kind of found them through our own channels. And Malagón was something that, it was this story that's very connected to my parents being cautious about me exploring Mexico City on my own. You know, I was going to meet a friend of mine who also was um, half Mexican and living in Mexico at the time. I was going to go meet her, broad daylight, afternoon, center of downtown my mom was telling me you know be cautious about what kind of cab you get into be cautious about this and that and so you know mid-20s like completely uncautious i would just walk into the first cab that i see and the driver is i don't know uh 18 maybe and the id on the window was like clearly someone else, clearly like a father or an uncle, <laughs> someone in their 50s, 60s, uh, very faded ID. And 
yet the ID had um, the name Malagon on it. And so, you know, we were just going. I, I got off and met my friend Samantha Catan and just kind of went on with my day. But that stuck with me because I was struck by this idea of this person holding on to this other person's identity. And I was at the same time doing this sort of identity search. I literally had a sort of deadline on when I had to put my DJ name out there. But I was just trying to figure out like my life and career, that concept of sort of flexing a new identity and like putting on a persona was something that resonated with me then as a DJ. And then I sort of thought, well, you know, there's DJ Malagon. Why can't my design practice be Studio Malagon? Now I have this channel that's just our sort of playlists called Radio Malagon. And it just feels like this extension of that identity that was kind of borrowed and, and then I took it on. Wow. What a cool origin story. One of the only things I know about Mexico City is that the Frida Kahlo Museum is there. And is that close to where you were by any chance? Did you spend any time at at that museum? No, it's funny, the Frida Kahlo Museum, I my my wife Sandy Russum has been with me to Mexico so many times. We met while I was living there. And yet we've never been able to go there because uh, it's far. It's like an hour's distance. It actually is in this place called Coyacan, which was not Mexico City. Um, it was a different town that got eaten up and incorporated into Mexico City. And the time that we went there most recently, we saw a line that basically was two, three hours long of, you know, nice day, lots of travelers trying to get into the museum, buses dropping people off, and we were like, okay, well, maybe another time. Maybe another time. You're going to have to go back and, and do that soon. Mexico City is so inspiring on every corner and every nook and cranny. Um, there's such a mix of new and old and traditional and contemporary and rich and poor. And, you know, there are like a lot of complexities to that disparity, but just rich exploration. And I ended up realizing, like, I really am a foreigner here. You know, like my family is from Mexico. I've, I speak fluent Spanish. I am... You know, I, I appear Mexican, but people would al always ask me, you know, s as soon as I speak a few words, where are you from? <laughs> and <laughs> I just couldn't quite blend in. But I think that as an outsider, I just got such a rich experience of, under of, of trying to piece together, you know, this idea of like, what is like the ghost of me that would have grown up here if not for that one job opportunity that my dad had? And, uh, wow. you know, I was... I was staying in the house where uh, eventually five generations of my family uh, set foot in and just kind of making a new life for myself there and understanding what what is my relationship to the city and this culture. And literally, I would just, if I had to go somewhere, I would plan to walk as much as possible from A to point B and just go down streets I hadn't gone down to. And I just took out my phone and photographed so many little details and used Instagram for the first time and found this whole community of people just capturing little moments that are just sort of serendipitous 
relationships between objects, this like bright colored chair leaned against the wall and the sunlight catching it in this way. And it doesn't have like a deep, rich story, but it has like this moment of connection and beauty in the day. And I have been thinking about <laughs> how little I walk lately during COVID times. And walking <laughs> is ultimately the way that I get inspiration. And the big reason for it, I think, is just because I don't know what's going to happen. Like my mind is emptier. I'm not sitting around solving a problem. I'm like just out there kind of observing uh, quietly my surroundings. And so many things can come of that. And how poetic that the name and the genesis of your studio is in the same place where generations of your family have been. That's a beautiful connection between like the the beginning of your studio and and your past. Yeah, it's it's really nice that um my family has been my my family really made a a, a very intentional effort to keep us connected with our extended family in Mexico and they wanted to stay connected too of, of course but just taking us there and making sure that we always had FaceTime, like I mentioned, breakfast, lunch, and dinner meetings with folks uh, in our family to connect with them once a year, every two years, and just feel like that was an important side of our, our life. Do you think you had a mission when you first started the studio? And, and if you did, how does it compare to what your mission is now? And when I first started, I was lucky to be really right away introduced to the kinds of industries that I'm still attracted to, which were art, culture, and media. My first uh, internship at Square Zero, I was working with the ICA in Boston. We worked with mass art, and we worked with the contemporary theater. We worked with the American Repertory Theater, uh, based in Cambridge. And so... We were doing cover design for theatrical productions. We were doing promotional brochures for art exhibitions. And to a degree, that was just my early understanding of what my mission was, was that I wanted to work for people who produced art and culture and media. And that has stuck as a thread I've, I've ventured into side projects, whether it's the DJing or other projects that are generating my own art, culture, and media, and then designing that. And that's just the area that I feel most, most richly connected to is we have now kind of landed on this working tagline of design for the delight of discovery and trying to create the designs that are going to introduce people or be that first cover image or that first introductory design that people see when they're you know engaging with this piece of media this piece of art entering this experience and so th that is something that i always want to lean into is just working with people who now the vision is coming together i literally woke up at 5 a.m this morning couldn't sleep with you know, the sort of positioning statement for the studio that is kind of become, coming into place. And that positioning statement is like pretty well linked to my early ideas of working in art and culture and media. 
We do visual design for ideas, stories, and experiences, not products. That's the working idea that we just, I have never wanted to work for products or uh, emphasizing product benefits. I've always wanted to work with people who, you know, are putting big ideas out there, uh, who are working in publishing, generating podcasts, and creating the the whole designed experience around what media they're creating. That, that's a great segue into talking about how we've been working together um, and the work that we've been doing since the beginning of the year on the new 10.7 website. I, I think your, you and your team, your whole team, has brought an incredible amount of insight and knowledge and experience to working together. And, and I'm really excited to start to share with the world what we're actually doing. And I'm really looking forward to the next phase of the work that we've been doing together. What, what I wanted to ask about was your process and your process with us. I struggle to say us because I don't treat you and I don't feel like you're a vendor. I feel like we're working together on this thing that we're building and this thing that we're creating. But I do realize that there is this service relationship and that you have a process and that you've used this process before. And what I'm curious about is, how has your process changed? How has it been different? Where have you needed to flex in your work with the project that we are collaborating on? Yeah, I, I really appreciate, first of all, just the the trust and the sort of like at-level partnership that you treat uh, my studio with. It is ultimately the the big key to us collaborating so well is just that we're partners in this and that feels like it just opens up a lot of um, you know trust my senior designer Melissa Brimer uh, we have been working on a handful of brand and website packages and we have honed a sort of basic process around it the process is is generally kind of an industry standard, but the part that I love about working with 10.7 is that you you have this comfort in opening up under the hood and seeing the the sort of inner workings of our design directions and the early early drafts. I remember we when I first was giving my art direction to Melissa, which is just a screen recording video of me saying, talking through, here's a bunch of inspiration, here's a bunch of tactical tools that we can look at um, in this mood board, here's a bunch of type and color thoughts, and I, and, you know, I offered to record that for you as well, you were excited for that, and that I think just is a really nice opportunity to bring, to bring you in, again, not really as a feeling of, as a client, but as a team member, and to be able to get into the the sort of messy design process where th while things are still sort of like, oh, I'm getting this emotional reaction from this thing, not sure if it's like a, a thread to follow. And, you know, I think that being able to get like collaborative in a messy way and just kind of throwing ideas out there, that really brings the best creative. And I try to bring my clients to that level as well what I appreciate about 10.7 is that you you have this vision that you are 
you have been formulating into words at the same time as we were kicking off the the visual design aspect of your brand and website and that i think you being in the headspace of envisioning like that is a perfect handoff for us creating visuals around that vision and so we we try to tease that out in our clients to sort of go beyond you know providing us the content and the specs for a thing like dig into what is the vision what is like the deep the deep meaning and value that you're trying to create that you want this audience to feel and you know we we really appreciate those clients who can be in those those sort of blurry conversations as the vision and visuals are both coming together um because again it just brings better creative i agree i think that it's hard to trust someone that is responsible for the future of your brand right like right. you can't just hire someone and trust them immediately there has to be some sort of connection there has to be some um, trust in the relationship there has to be in some cases data and evidence as well and i'm just so glad that we've been able to collaborate the way we have and um, this podcast will publish but we still won't have launched anything publicly from a visual perspective but boy watch out because something amazing is coming out soon what has been hard what has been difficult for the team what has surprised you or delighted you about the project? It's really hard to come up with difficulties in this. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not just saying that to you know be overly positive. The the would be difficulties is oftentimes in the design process. There's just a lack of communication mm. or a lack of clarity around you know what what your vision really is or how you might respond to this or that, what's sort of your underlying emotions behind things. But we've had the pleasure of breaking through that. Like we have very open communication and we have very open, you know, critique of what's working and what's not. And um, that, that sort of vulnerability is really treasured. I mean, that's mm. something that I'm actually learning that I can apply to other clients is just not being afraid to be vulnerable and to ask questions that might clarify a major facet of what we're working on. So, you know, just having that, that open pathway and um, bringing in your strategist, Lynn, into the wireframe reviews. And there's a lot of just the sort of open critique and open conversation that breaks through what is typically the challenge. I think that's a glowing compliment, and I wasn't looking for one, but I appreciate everything you said. <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking at your LinkedIn profile as part of the research I was doing for this episode, and I remember seeing this the last time I looked at the profile, back before we started working together, and there was this company called Object Solutions, and <laughs> and on the out. You know, on the outside and at the outset, you take a peek at it and it looks like a real company, feels like a real company, but there's just this really weird dystopian future edge that it has, almost like Black Mirror, that show about 
all those weird futuristic things, right? Uh, especially that, and then I kind of clicked on it and I looked at the websites and I spent time watching all four videos that were there. And the sleep achievement medal really was something that stuck out at me. Um, and then I looked at when when Object Solutions was created, and it was created, I think, early in 2013 or 2014, something like that, so it wasn't recent. And it's really a project by by you, right? It's one of your one of your projects, and it's dark satire. How did you come up with this idea? What what were the influences, and and what was what was your whole thought pattern around creating Object Solutions? Object Solutions, I really appreciate the the lens that you have on it because that's exactly what I tried to create in the design was something that could pass for a real company, but you just see between the lines and there's a dark future they're presenting. And I was always really interested, I've always been interested in futurism and future forecasting. And uh, in college, this was sort of 2006, my friend Chris Maggio and I created, we would always talk about these topics, like just sort of what if scenarios that were absurdist about what if, you know, robots were integrated into every single thing we touch kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We created this thing at the time called the Institute of Future Impactful Thought. It was like a rough prototype for this. <laughs> and I just kept going with that thread. I, like It was a school project that kind of died, and I was just like, I really still want to make this this thing that could house all these absurdist inventions that I come up with all day. And I, the, the invention that really kicked it off was the magnifying spoon. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that was a good one. Sorry, uh, I'm sorry, listeners, to be interrupting, but you have to watch the, the, the uh, magic spoon video on objectsolutions.net. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> keep going, keep going. <laughs> yeah, so the, the magnifying spoon was born literally to solve a problem that I had, uh, which was I was working in downtown Boston at a design studio, went to grab my lunch, brought it back, and it was a burrito bowl without a crunch, but I felt a crunch. And I... <laughs> I investigated the crunch. There was a small piece of glass in my burrito bowl. Oh, no. (laughs) And so, you know, rather than just kind of get super angry and everything, I just always carried my ideas notebook around. And I just thought, like, wouldn't it be funny if I had this, this obsessive tool that I could use to magnify my meal, and thus I would have caught the errant object before I bit in? Um, and so I just, just kind of like, I'm already getting into that voice, just describing it, just kind of this highly technical and overly optimistic tone of like, what if you had this most amazing object that's going to solve all your troubles? That was the, the sort of voice that came out of it. And I would just take my lunch walks and have a little notebook and be writing on like the column of the restaurant where I was waiting for my takeout sandwich. I would just be writing the scripts. And I just eventually talked to, I was so fortunate to meet up with these folks, Juan Pablo Viedma and Carlos Maldonado in Mexico City, that I just described the magnifying spoon to them. They're industrial designers and they said, you have to make that. We know where you can make that. And they took me down to... Mexico City downtown has um, 
from you know indigenous times has a very sort of specialized block by block uh, zoning of what kind of products you can buy in that one block and so you can go down to the lens block and get your custom lens uh, done by a, a custom lens maker who can carve it out like a spoon for you then you walk over to the jewelry block and you can have a custom jewelry maker replicate a spoon handle that you brought and take the lens and figure out how exactly to clamp them together and then pretty soon you have this bright gleaming object that you can use in a film production amazing so i went to new york with my friends chris maggio and john wilson and we uh, were lucky to be they're very enmeshed in the film uh network there and so we had a green screen space their friend brad rented us and we just created this stark, dramatic product demo video around the magnifying spoon, around the full-body moist towel. There was one called the ergonomic pants, which didn't make <laughs> it to light. And they sort of let me drive the creative direction, even though I had never done this before. I was kind of trying to partner with them on the vision, but they were like, well, it's your vision. What do you want? And I just pieced together this entire world you know i was just following the inspiration without having like a deep vision for the the purpose or the final outcome it was just i want this thing to look like a company to have product demo videos on the website and to make a statement about how we rely on technology how we turn to technology whenever something fails us uh, or whenever it's difficult to manage on our own terms. So it was really just this this whole world built around the, the in inquisitiveness around, you know, what is our relationship with technology? Like, and where do we want it to go? What's striking to me is that this was produced years ago, right? Eight years ago, which in internet times is like five eras or something. <laughs> but when you think about what you're saying and what you've produced as possible future, like, are these products really that ridiculous when you think about them now? Like, the, like especially the Sleep Achievement Medal. We, we have to talk about that <laughs> because, like, eight years ago, no one would be caught dead carrying something around their neck that had, you know, a flashing amount of hours that I slept last night. And... And uh, I don't know that we anyone would want to do that now, but I feel like we're closer to wanting to do that now than we were, you know, eight or ten years ago. And I and I wonder what ridiculous thing we can think of now that'll just be normal ten years from now. Exactly, the sleep achievement medal was this little uh, glowing digital emblem. <laughs> Uh, that you would wear on on at your chest that just displayed how many hours you slept last night. I think that's maybe a feature in the Apple Watch now. I don't know. But at the time, it was just right. something that I found in Mexico City that you could program the LED to do any pixel pattern that you wanted. So I designed all the pixel patterns for one hour of sleep versus 14 hours of sleep and how those would look Which different. Is <laughs> 14, I saw the 14 hours of sleep. I thought, really? <laughs> Hey, that's the ultimate achievement. <laughs> I guess. I guess. <laughs> yeah, actually, so 
my friend John and I, uh, like in between shots, we were wearing each of one hour of slept and 14 hours of sleep metal. We walked into a coffee shop to get coffee for the crew, and I think I was wearing the one hour. And the the baristas just gave me a free double espresso. You know, they were feeling bad You're for kidding. me. Kidding, <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. So you know, a real test. It it actually worked. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. And for our for our listeners, ObjectSolutions.net. You should check that out and look at this wonderful fake company that could be real that Ernesto created. And also, what a great portfolio piece for Studio Malagón, right? I mean, this is something that shows up when you do a re- when you do research into your, into you and your studio and this is an additional display of the thought process and the creative process that you have. This is really what I want to keep digging into. The kind of thing that I want to do with Studio Malagón, that's like the bigger vision is that we want to work with folks who work in art culture and media and we want to produce art culture and media ourselves and have this perspective that we generate. The vision for Object Solutions has always been a little bit difficult because the future moves faster than you can make fun of. (laughs) It was always a means to sort of like look 10 steps into the future and sort of create this absurdist view of like the dark future we could lead toward if we don't, you know, do some critiquing around our relationship with technology. And there's there's like a there's like a humor to it, but it's like a real serious message that it's trying to inspire. There's a design fiction or speculative design, a lot of disciplines that have emerged and flourished that in the time I was had just found a handful to kind of model off of. So we just want to keep participating in that conversation and and yet the the future to visualize the future I have found that I think audio is a good way to sort of more broadly imagine the what-ifs because you don't have to spend your time creating a prototype of something and then the next day it's on Kickstarter in a different version that someone is trying to put out there. There's a little bit more, I want to think, beyond the the future that I could personally manufacture and kind of like imagine fictional scenarios and imagine how we would turn to those with this corporation object solutions as this corporate caretaker who is taking care of all your concerns and you can outsource all your problems to and have them (laughs) handle them for you. So you've kind of described the future through this company, Object Solutions, and sort of a big brother aspect. What's the future of Studio Malagón, and what, what do you envision for your agency moving forward? Yeah, I have been digging into this myself and trying to answer those big questions, trying to work on the business when I get the chance we have this goal of honing more into uh, working with art culture media, working with people, doing visual design for ideas, stories, and experiences. And just to participate as thought leaders uh, on our own in generating ideas, stories, and experiences from our own from our own lens, whether it's this critical dark satire of the future, whether it's um, you know creating musical experiences or just generating dialogues about design as an industry, as a tool. 
that's the next realm, and you know, it's it's a little bit like the direction that you've taken ten seven in, where you are an agency that provides services, but you also have a strong perspective that you put out through your blog and podcast, and then that brings the kinds of clients and team members that are interested in the passions that you have, in the perspectives you have. And so that's kind of like the the circle we're trying to create in the coming years is put ourselves more out as thought leaders, establish really more of a honed vision of what our perspectives are in the world of design and technology and and beyond. And to have that be the the way that we meet the people that we partner with. It's been glorious to speak with you and to listen to you speak. And uh, I just have so much fun talking to you and working with you. And I'm just appreciative of the time you've spent with me today and um, for sharing your thoughts on the podcast with us. Yeah, absolutely. I am so grateful for you inviting me on and for you to trust us as your partners in working on this new vision for you. I'm excited for the world to see it as well. I am excited too. And thank you very much for your time today. Yes, thank you. Ernesto Morales is the founder and creative director of Studio Malagón, a graphic design agency that creates moments of connection in Austin, Texas. You can find them online at studiomalagón.com. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thank you for listening. <laughs>